He is risen. He is risen Amen. Some of you recognize that saying. I learned that as a boy on Easter. The pastor says he is risen and the response is he is risen indeed. I have to say though, even though I learned that statement as a boy for the first 26 years of my life, those words really didn't mean anything to me. I knew the story of Jesus and the empty tomb. I grew up going to church. And I knew that Sunday was set aside for the Lord's Day, but Easter was a special Sunday. Even as an adult, I sometimes would go to a sunrise service on Easter morning because that was what you do. Easter, you were supposed to go to church, so I did it. For me, Easter was about the American holiday. As a kid, I certainly loved to hunt Easter eggs. I still like eating them. I love the chocolate bunnies. I love my Easter basket. I like peeps now more than I did as a kid. (laughs) And we always had a really good dinner after church on Sunday. When I first was living in California as a young adult, we'd go to a fancy Easter brunch at a nice restaurant. That was Easter. That's what I looked forward to. Egg hunts and candy and good food. The only thing I really remember about church on Easter was that it was always very, very crowded. But then the next week it went back to normal and everybody was gone. But then about 30 years ago, something happened that changed how I see Easter forever. I was in church, not because I wanted to be there, but because my wife really wanted us to go. It wasn't an Easter Sunday that I recall. But she wanted to go to church and I was newly married and I figured it would be better to make her happy by going to church from time to time than to plant a flag. I could tolerate a couple of hours with what I thought was largely boredom to secure a few husband points that I thought that I could use later for something I wanted. But one Sunday, the pastor of that church, which was in Elkhorn, California, very famous now, not as much then, his name's David Jeremiah, interrupted my boredom. Debbie had heard him on the radio and wanted to go to his church. It was an hour drive to get there, an hour drive home. But one Sunday, he was preaching on the Old Testament. To this day, I don't remember what the text was. But I do remember that he zeroed in on the holiness of God and the power of God. He painted a picture of God, the Creator, as holy and majestic and powerful. And he made clear from the scriptures again, I can't remember which ones he used, that God hated sin and that one day guilty sinners would stand before the holy God. Something about what he was saying struck my heart. Now, I always called myself a Christian. I'd gone to church as a kid. I had a Bible. I'd said prayers. In fact, as a teenager, I'd even prayed a prayer that somebody told me I needed to pray to ask Jesus into my heart. Outwardly, I was generally fairly well-liked. But I knew my heart. And at that moment, on that Sunday morning, confronted with a holy, powerful God before whom I would one day stand, I could practically feel myself shrink because I knew what I was on the inside. 
I remember having the distinct thought that if I died during that hour drive home from church that day and stood before God, a holy God who hated and judged sin, I was in trouble. I knew I was a dead man. I felt at that moment several rapid fire realities that later I understood from Scripture, but these thoughts, apart from the Scripture, were going through my mind. Romans 3, 10 and 11. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. And I knew in that moment, despite calling myself a Christian, that described me, even if I didn't know that text. Romans 6, the beginning of verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. Hebrews 4, 13, and there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Hebrews 10, 30 and 31. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I felt that terror. God had pulled back the curtain on my heart. It was as though time had stopped. The pastor kept talking. He was leading the church in prayer. Debbie was sitting next to me with no idea of the turmoil that was going on inside of me. And in that moment, I could not escape the truth that was so clear to me from the Scriptures that I was guilty before a holy God and one day I would stand in front of Him and He knew everything about me. I was a sinner who was rotten on the inside and I deserved death and I knew it. But praise the Lord that Pastor Jeremiah didn't just share those terrifying truths with grip my heart. He also shared how Jesus, the perfect sinless Son of God, had died in the place of sinners. Yes, we deserve sin. The wages of sin is death. But Jesus died in our place if we would only place our faith in Him. Sinners are guilty before God, but Jesus paid the penalty for sinners for all who would ever believe. And then he rose from the dead, proving that he had conquered death for all time for those who put their trust in him. Guilty, vile sinners could have eternal life because Jesus died in their place and rose again. The terror that I felt in that moment when time seemed to stop knowing that God would destroy me if I stood before Him in my sin, was replaced with the reality that God was giving me a lifeline. He was giving me the hope of salvation in Jesus Christ. And I knew in that moment I needed the Lord. I cried out for mercy. I knew in that moment that Jesus died for me. I believed that with all my heart. And every Easter since that Sunday in 1993, it's never been the same. I still like candy and food and Easter eggs. I'm still going to have lunch with my family this afternoon, but that's not what makes Easter Easter to me. It's this. Being here and singing and lifting our voices to the Lord. Hearing the truths of Scripture read to us. 
praising the Lord with other redeemed sinners. I marvel on Easter, as I should every day, that Jesus would die for a sinner like me. I can't comprehend it. But I believe it with all my heart. He is risen. This is my favorite Sunday of the year. Because the hope I have because of Jesus' resurrection floods my mind. The truths of the songs we sing lead me not to the cross but to the empty tomb. They elevate my thinking above the mundane things of this earth and I see the reality of Christ. I realize I should feel this way every Sunday but there's something special about this day when we gather to celebrate. It's as if all the problems of the world for a few moments take a back seat. The world is a mess. Our country seems headed off a cliff. The economy is on a tightrope on the edge of disaster. Our politicians seem to engage in endless foolishness. But the clarity of the resurrection makes those things not seem so important in the moment. Regardless of what is going on in the world, Easter is a reminder that with our God, all things are possible. Even bringing good out of this evil and corrupt world Romans 8, 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose, and it's because Jesus rose from the dead. Easter is a reminder of everything good and glorious and hopeful for God's children. And the natural outgrowth of this is to join our hearts in worship, which is what we've been doing Hebrews 13, 15 says, Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. I could go on singing with all of you all day long. I love this. This is a beautiful time. And so as I was thinking about what I would preach in this opportunity to speak on Sunday, I thought that praise to God is evident. It's what we do. And so it's what we're going to focus on this morning. If you've looked in your program, in the bulletin, you'll see that we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 1 today. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're really going to focus on verses 3 through 5, which is where we're going to go for worship, for praise. It's interesting because Peter wrote this letter to believers who were enduring very real hardship. Many of them were suffering in what would be the equivalent of their workplace Many of them were suffering at the hands of a corrupt government, the Romans. Many of them had bad marriages and struggles. Some were married to unbelievers. Many were treated harshly even by their own families for having come to faith in Christ. They were hurting and Peter wanted to encourage them to press on. What I find fascinating was he didn't begin the book talking about their problems and the solutions. He began the book by elevating their gaze to the God who is their Savior. That's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to focus on the God who saved us in looking at these verses. So follow along with me as I read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, 
who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We're going to see this morning three reasons from our text to praise God this Easter and every other day. Three reasons to praise God this Easter. But before we even get into our outline and our first point, Peter directs us to praise by how he introduces this section. Again, I'm struck by the fact that Peter didn't start by dealing with the problems that were very real that they had. He started by pointing them to praise. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is an emotive and heartfelt expression of praise. It's actually in the original language they say a very long sentence that runs many verses beyond what we'll even talk today. But the very first word is the word translated blessed. This is the focal point. He's in essence simply stating along the lines of our current vernacular, praise the Lord. And he assumes that we want to do that. That we would join with him in praising the Lord. But this isn't generic praise to a God. This isn't praise to the man upstairs or just the good Lord. He's very specific. This is praise to the one true God who is identified in relation to his son. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter wasn't writing a book on theology, but he really focuses on the triune God in his letter. If you look back, I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 that precede this because he really puts on display all three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. He's really trying to elevate us in our text by saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ to look beyond this earth to the heavenly reality of the God who created and controls everything. God is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Very significant. Jesus is our Lord. He is our sovereign. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So before Peter deals with the practical instruction, and he has much in his book, he's wanting to lift all of our eyes to the reality of the God to whom we give our praise. He uses words that were very familiar apparently in that time period in the early church. The Apostle Paul used a very similar greeting on two occasions for parts of it are almost identical. Ephesians 1.3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Similarly, in 2 Corinthians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. The Holy Spirit wants us to direct praise to God the Father, identifying His relationship to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
when something like that appears more than once in the Bible, we realize we need to pay attention. It's important. God is worthy of our praise. He deserves our praise. Even when life is hard and things seem out of control, we should praise God who sent His Son to redeem sinners like us. So this really is the starting point for the entire message and the actual outline I used. The best way to celebrate Easter is really to get our minds off of ourselves and our problems and place our focus on the Lord. This isn't wishful thinking, hoping our problems go away. This is practical reality of fixing our minds on the things above, not on the things of the earth. If you are the biggest thing that your mind ever thinks about, you're going to miss it. You have to place your mind on our Heavenly Father who sent His Son to redeem sinners like us. And that leads us to our first point. Three reasons to praise God this Easter and every other day. The first point is this. God has shown us mercy we don't deserve. God has shown us mercy we don't deserve. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Again, he's not writing a theology textbook, but he loads this brief exclamation with profound truth. Again, he's already made it clear that God is the moving force in our salvation. God is the one who redeems sinners. Looking back again at at verse 1 and part of verse 2, part of verse 1 and part of verse 2, Verse 2, to those who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. Believers are chosen by God. The Spirit of God works in our hearts to bring us to faith. We were chosen by God before the foundations of the earth for salvation. Why? Because He's a merciful God who according to His great mercy did all of these things. As one commentator stated, mercy is the feeling of pity and compassion towards the miserable and that's what we are in our sins. And it wasn't just a little mercy. God showed us great mercy by sending His Son to die and then raising Him from the dead. God knows who we really are. We can't hide from Him. He sees all. He knows all. He knew all the sins we would ever commit. He knew all the evil thoughts that would go through our mind. He knows things about us that we've hidden in the deep recesses of our hearts that no one else knows. God sees it all. He knows how miserable and wretched we really are. And He still loved us. He still showed us great mercy. He knew that we had no hope on our own. We couldn't fix it. We couldn't make it better. We couldn't work off the guilt of our sin. And God saw us in this pitiable, miserable state. And He had mercy on us. He showed us compassion. One of my favorite lines in a worship song, and I'm paraphrasing it, But it says, he knew the depths of our heart and he loves us the same. You are amazing, God. 
Paul powerfully expressed the same truth in Ephesians 2 verses 4 to 7. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's the truth that grips my heart every Easter Sunday. And every Sunday when we're singing praises together. That's what I experienced that one Sunday morning long ago when I became a true Christian. I was dead on the inside and I knew it. I had no hope. But I was offered the free gift of God's love that I could have never earned because of God's great mercy. It's sad and tragic that all of us, including me at times, can forget to praise God. We get discouraged because life is hard. Things are not going our way. Sometimes we've done what we feel is the right thing and we still suffer for it. There are times, if we're honest, that we feel like God's giving us the short end of the stick. Yeah, He's working all things for good for all the other people, but what about me? This morning, I'm going to give us an Easter reality check. Do you know what you deserve? You deserve hell. That's what I deserve. We are sinners before a holy God. But through Jesus, God gives us life because of his great mercy. Peter is telling us that because of God's overflowing mercy, we aren't getting what we deserve. We're getting the mercy and love of God poured out on us that we don't deserve. It should cause us to lift our voices and praise to God every moment of every day. It's how God saved us, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Our salvation is because of God, God working in us. God's mercy led him to cause us to be born again, to give us new hearts so that we could respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Only God can do the work we call regeneration that we read about. God's mercy made possible what Jesus said was essential for salvation. In John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But God did what we could not do. He used His Spirit to bring about the new birth, to give us a new heart, to cause us to be born again. We are new creatures in Christ because of the work of God through the Spirit, because of the completed work of Jesus Christ. That's why we praise Him. Of all people, we should be those who praise the Lord. Did we deserve his mercy? Of course not. Joel already read this, but the first part of 1 Peter 3.18 sums it up. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, which is us, so that he might bring us to God. Again, we're guilty, yet God, for his own love and purposes, chose us as the recipients of his great abundant mercy and caused us to be born again 
Romans 9, 15, and 16, for he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy and will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. It's all wrapped up in this short statement. Our new birth is described as giving us a living hope. This really is just a reflection of our reality in Christ. We have absolute hope that things will be different for all eternity in the future. We may not get the actual outcomes we want on the earth, but we have the promise that we will be with Jesus forever. As he told the thief on the cross, as was sung in the words, today you'll be with me in paradise. One day that will be us. We have a living hope because we have a living Savior. He died, but he rose again. This entire picture is is described beautifully in Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 7. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. All that's possible because what we are celebrating on Easter. Peter continues in verse 3, who according to his great Mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Easter isn't just any Sunday. What we celebrate is the foundational truth of Christianity. Jesus is alive. Our being born again is directly related to Jesus not just dying in our place, but also rising from the grave. You can't have a living hope without a risen Savior. That's why I read 1 Corinthians 15 because it makes it so clear that Easter is not just any Sunday. It commemorates the resurrection without which there would be no hope. As the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, I'll reread verses 16 and 17, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. But Jesus is alive. The dead are raised. Jesus was raised. And so we have hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The tomb is empty. We deserve death, but we have life again because Jesus rose from the grave. The first part of Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the verse doesn't end there. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a reason for us to praise the Lord. We could stop there and have enough to praise Jesus for all eternity. But Peter continues, and he makes it clear that because of Jesus' resurrection, the reflection of God's great mercy that we don't deserve, we also receive something very, very precious. That leads to the second reason to praise God this Easter. First, God has shown us mercy we don't deserve. Second, God has reserved for us a perfect inheritance in heaven. 
rereading verse 3 into verse 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you. Every person who has been born again because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead has been blessed by God with an inheritance in heaven. We generally understand the concept of inheritance. If we have a relative who has some financial means or a close friend perhaps, they can write out a will and they can leave us something. We may inherit something from them. They die, we get their stuff. But Peter's not talking about something we receive from a dead relative. This is something we receive from God and it's much more significant and much more secure than any human inheritance. The reality is is if you're in somebody's will right now and they're promising to leave you something, it means nothing until they die. The will can be changed. In our unbelieving world, there are a lot of people looking at the will and looking at the clock hoping that their relative doesn't call a lawyer because they realize they'll lose the stuff they want. Even the Bible recognizes this in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 16 and 17. And I'm going to read it from the ESV because they translate a word, I think, that makes it clear. They translate it correctly. And I don't have to explain it. It says, For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. But the inheritance reserved in heaven for us is something completely different. Even now, that inheritance, skipping ahead and I'll come back to it, is reserved in heaven for you. It's a present reality. Nothing can take away that inheritance from you. It's not written on a piece of paper that can be changed in a lawyer's office. This is written in heaven and it will never change. There is security and hope and comfort in this. Every time the economy starts having a hiccup, it seems like a bank fails. It happened recently. Bank in Silicon Valley, a bank in New York. And it makes everybody nervous because we realize, where's the safe place? Where do I put my stuff? Do I put it in stocks? Well, the market's going down. Do I put it in bonds? Well, interest rates are messing everything up. Do I put it in gold? Do I put it in a coffee can in my backyard? But the reality is all those earthly things have no security. They can be gone in an instant. But not this inheritance. It is secure. It can't be touched by the economy or a politician or anyone else. Nothing is safer. Nothing is more secure than the reward reserved for us in heaven and which is our inheritance. Now I've read this from other people so it's not my original thought but it's very hard to describe something in heaven because we're not there. We live in this world where sin has tainted everything and so the only present reality we have to understand things is what we can see and feel and touch to a certain extent. And so quite often in the scriptures when something in heaven is being described it's described in a negative meaning it's not like that. It's not like that. 
That's exactly what Peter does here. So he describes the inheritance by saying what it's not. So first he says this inheritance is imperishable. It means it's not subject to decay. It won't deteriorate. I couldn't help but think about Jesus' words in Matthew 6.20, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. That's really the contrast. Whatever you find on earth, whatever your most valuable possession on earth, it is going to deteriorate. You know that everything deteriorates by looking in the mirror. The older you get, you can see it happening in real time. But it happens to tangible things. It happens to wealth. It happens to buildings, metal rust, wood rots, concrete cracks. There is nothing ultimately solid on the earth. But in heaven, our inheritance is imperishable. Not only is it imperishable, it is undefiled. That means it's not tainted or stained by sin. Sin can never touch anything in heaven. Our inheritance will not be corrupted. It will not be denigrated. It will be kept in pristine condition by the God of the universe and sin can't touch it. Speaking of the heavenly city we will one day inhabit where we will receive our inheritance, the Apostle John says this, and nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Of all the descriptions of the inheritance, this is the hardest for me to get my hands around because I can't imagine being freed from a world of sin. You look in the mirror and you see it. You're a sinner. Everyone around you is a sinner. The world we lived in is corrupted by sin. That's why the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 2 says this in verses 15 to 17. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Here's the point. The inheritance we have in heaven will be nothing like this world. There won't be a hint of sin. It will be undefiled. And Peter continues, he says, and will not fade away. The idea here is that it never loses its luster or its beauty. That inheritance never needs polishing. It never needs to be repainted. It's perfect forever. The word conveys the idea of a flower that blooms. We see a beautiful flower that blooms, but immediately it starts to decay. Eventually the color loses and the leaves fall off and then it's gone. He's saying our inheritance is not anything like that. It will always be glorious. It will always be beautiful. It will never dim or fade. Painted together, it's a picture of an unbelievable inheritance. Thought goes through my mind from time to time. I hope it would encourage you today, this Easter Sunday. On this earth, by and large, we are nobodies. Very few people know what's going on right now at 1893 Sunset Point Road in Clearwater. We're not on anybody's radar. 
The president's not looking for my phone number to call me in time of crisis. The United Nations isn't looking up our membership directory because they want to find the movers and the shakers of the world. We're just redeemed sinners. I don't want to depress you, but if you think about it, there's eight plus billion people on the earth. Hardly any of them know who we are. But in heaven, God knows your name. You're written in the Lamb's book of life. And your inheritance is in heaven and it's got your name on it. He says, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. It's a plural word. It's certainly speaking of the whole church, but it's personal. It's got your name on it. It's got my name on it if we know Jesus Christ. And unlike all the things that we could accumulate on the earth that will wear out and tarnish and fade away, our inheritance is nothing like that. It will be perfect and it's just waiting for the day that we step into eternity. This Easter Sunday may find you struggling. Your life may be unbearable right now. It may be hard. You may feel as though you're barely functioning and you don't know if you'll be able to keep going. Let me encourage you, when you're discouraged and troubled, don't make yourself the center of your world. Focus on your Savior. Focus on Jesus and remember what's waiting for you. The troubles of this earth are one day going to be gone and we'll be with Jesus in glory. And that leads to our final point. Three reasons to praise God this Easter. First, God has shown us mercy we don't deserve. Second, God has reserved for us a perfect inheritance in heaven. And third and finally, God is protecting us with his power. God is protecting us with his power. Peter continues, reserved in heaven verse for you, verse 5, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This really brings it all together and gives us encouragement in the here and now. While we're waiting for that perfect inheritance, we inhabit this sin-filled world and these frail, prone-to-sin bodies. But in this weak, vulnerable state, we're protected by the God of the universe, by His power. It's the best protection plan we could ever have, better than any warranty you'll ever find, who are protected by the power of God. I struggle to fully comprehend the significance of this, but Scripture helps me, and it gives me hope. This world is not our home. It hurts us. It's difficult. There are tears and death and dying and misery here, but this isn't our future. And while we're here, God is still looking out for us. He's still caring for us. And there's nothing that this world can do to separate us from the God who sent a son to die and raised him from the dead for sinners like us. Romans 8, 31 to 39 and verses that I go to many times. Not to preach a sermon because I need it for my own heart. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he 
not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what it means to be protected by the power of God through faith. We are safe in His arms. Faith is our response to what God has done. The book of Hebrews in chapter 11 has a great catalog of men and women who lived by faith. It's, it's evidence that God can sustain us even through terribly difficult times. Many of them were being persecuted and died, but they endured and God teaches us to endure by faith. You see it over and over in that chapter. By faith, by faith, by faith. This is God's gift to us. Our faith is evidence that we're protected by the power of God. God's protection doesn't come because we protect ourselves. It can be tempting in this world, and I always cringe a little bit, to try and do it ourselves. Things get tough and people start stockpiling guns and ammunition and food and all of these things. And I'm not against planning. Don't misunderstand me. But the way some people talk and live, you would think that all of their hope is in that stuff rather than in the God who sent His Son to die for sinners. Our hope isn't in this earth. It isn't in our possessions. It isn't in all these things. Our hope is in the power of God that protects us in this fallen world. God loves and cares for us and we're protected by His power through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is just simply talking about the full benefits of our salvation. We're already saved because of our faith in Christ, but one day we'll get everything. We'll get the inheritance. We'll get new glorified bodies. We'll be with Jesus. It's the full realization of the blessings of what we've been promised. Philippians 3, 20 21, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Peter's just talking about this future day of salvation when we have everything. Glorified bodies, free from sin, no more death or dying or tears or sadness. But the great hope for us, while all those things are still realities, is that we're protected by the power of God until that day. And nothing can separate us from His love. I'm drawn to the words of Jesus in John chapter 10, verses 27 to 29. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. 
And I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So I hope on this Easter Sunday you can praise the Lord for what we have, what He's given us. But perhaps you're here today or you're hearing my voice and you're like I was on that Sunday a long time ago. And you realize through the music and through the scriptures and through the preaching of the word that your heart is not right with God. That you're still in your sin. Perhaps God this morning has pulled back the curtain on your heart and you see yourself for who you really are before a holy God. Let me encourage you. Everything in today's message from the music to the scriptures to the sermon have been about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you feel like God is speaking to you, don't ignore Him. The warnings of Hebrews chapter 3 verses 7 and 8 are pertinent. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Repent and cry out to God for His mercy this Easter Sunday. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you can be saved. But if you know Jesus, praise Him today. Thank Him for His mercy and for your future inheritance and for protecting you in this fallen world from the forces of evil that would seek to separate you from His love. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. I thank you for the opportunity to celebrate Easter. I thank you, Lord, that Jesus is alive and He's seated at your right hand, interceding even now for His children. But Lord, my heart is heavy for those who don't know Jesus Christ. For them, Easter is just a day. Maybe you go to church on Easter because you're supposed to. Lord, I pray that you would meet them here and work in their hearts. Lord, don't allow them to harden their hearts. If you're drawing them to yourself, Lord, I pray that they would repent and believe. And for your children, Lord, our world is hard. Our lives are difficult. Sin permeates and corrupts everything. I thank you, Lord, for this reminder from your word that one day that'll all be gone. And because of your great mercy and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, we have a living hope. And we pray, Lord, that you will sustain us till the end until one day we are with you in paradise. Hasten that day. We love you and we ask all of these things in the name of our risen Savior. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.